Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you with another edition of Questions for Corbett on this 23rd day of February 2022. Even more specifically, 9.58 a.m. Japanese Standard Time, as I am speaking these words. A qualification that is important for today's question because it involves a live, ongoing, unfolding news event, and that unfolding news event will undoubtedly have evolved uh, between the time I am speaking these words and the time you are hearing them, at least 12 hours later. So keep that in mind as we delve into today's question, which comes from the contact form on CorbettReport.com from Thomas, who yesterday wrote in, I'm a big fan of the Corbett Report, but I'm also disappointed with your pro-Russian attitude. As far as I remember, your comments on Russia and V. Putin have always been positive. This evening, Putin announced recognizing the separatist republics, former Ukraine territory, as independent, and the Russian military is on its way there. I live in Poland. I was born under Russian occupation, which lasted until 1989, and I just don't get it. You totally seem to be ignoring Russian aggressive politics or refusing to understand it. Yesterday, I was watching New World Next Week, and both you and James E.P., Evan Pilato, were denying claims again that Putin plans to send troops to Ukraine, saying, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, there it is, and I'd like to know what you think about it. All right, Thomas, well, thank you for asking the question. However, firstly, let me say up front, I categorically, vociferously, and forcefully reject your framing of this question, specifically your, your assertion that uh, I have a pro-Russian attitude, and as far as you remember, my comments on Russia and V. Putin have always been positive, which is a flat-out, categorical, documentable lie. So to all the people who think that Putin is the great savior of civilization and blah, 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 no, he's another authoritarian thug like all of them. I am not Team Trump. I am not Team Putin. I am not Team Abe. I'm not Team Trudeau. I'm not Team any of these thugs that are only in it for the power over other people. And uh, they're bloodthirsty tyrants as far as I'm concerned, and I do not bow down or supplicate to any of them. They all are authoritarian regimes that will do anything in their power to stop opposition and stop people speaking freely. And here's another example of it. And so there's a lot of things that we have to note here. One is that, oh, look, things are going back to normal after those years of crazy disruption of Brexit and Trump and populism and all that. We're going back to normalization of international relations, which means, of course, that you're going to get your two options presented to, for you. Either you're on the NATO side of go in and rule people with an iron fist and bomb them back into smithereens if they don't uh, accept it, or you're going to be, oh, the BRICS are the saviors and the multilateral new world order is the new world order we should be embracing. What if I What if I don't want a new world order? What if we want free humanity to interact and, and, and with each other peacefully? No, you can't do that. You must be part of one of these collectives. So make your decision now. Well, for people like us who don't go along with that propaganda, that must mean that Putin's the good guy and this Eurasian Union must be a good thing. No. What is happening here is we are being offered a feces sandwich and it's being cut in half. And, we're and they're saying to us, look, you can have this half of the feces sandwich or this half of the feces sandwich. And here's the best part. You get to choose which half you're going to eat. No, thank you. I am, for one, am not going to take a bite out of that sandwich at all. Yes, fascinating. These human wrecking balls of the globalist world order establishment, the Putins and Xi Jinping's and others of this rising multipolar world, 
have been at the forefront of calling for a new world order. In those words, precisely. I mean, there are no shortage of examples of this, not only the ones that we saw there, but several more that we could point to. Uh, Putin at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum in June of 2007 calling for a new economic world order, or Putin at the Valdai Discussion Club in 2014 calling for a new world order, or Putin at the Valdai Discussion Club in 2016 calling for a new world order to make the fruit of economic growth and technological progress accessible to all. You know, I, I don't know what else, if I was in his position, that I would do than what he's doing. But what is he up against? He's not up against Biden. Ernie, earth to Ernie, earth to Ernie, you are not in Putin's position because you would never claim to rule over tens of millions of people by right of some vote that took place, right? No, Putin is a disgusting horrible statist, like all the rest. And he may be good at the game that he is playing, but it is a game and I do not, I am not Team Putin. He came He came to power on the back of, remember the apartment bombing false flags that the FSB did back in 1999, that suddenly this Putin who came out, of who's Putin? Oh, he's the guy who's going to put Russia at war with Chechnya. Yay! No, Putin is a scum, like all the rest of these politicians. And I'm going to equate him or or measure him differently from whom who 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 who's the good leader who's your example well hey how about let's look at their covid policies and oh look at that they're all the same and russia is doing it absolutely like every other country yeah. so no do not put putin on a pedestal does this mean we should go oh, to wait, war with wait, putin wait, wait, wait. of Don't course say not I put him on a pedestal i mean come on <laughs> okay <You know>? uh, <laughs> to be fair you did not say that and i'm not <laughs> no no my <laughs> but point... i am addressing the people in the independent media who would and do put Putin on a pedestal and post, oh, here's Putin singing with a boy's choir in a church. He's such a great leader. We need someone like that in the U.S. He's Total Russian propaganda nonsense. Having said that, do we need war in order to, uh, you know, we should put Russia to straight by getting Putin out of there? Of course not. No, that is the stupid two-dimensional chess game they want us playing. I could go on and on and on, but you get the point. The documented reality is 180 degrees opposite, completely the other way around to what Thomas asserted without evidence in his question. I am not pro-Putin. I am not Team Russia. I have never declared allegiance to Putin or Russia. And I go out of my way to completely and painstakingly demonstrate and prove this point, not because I am a sensitive snowflake who can't handle people misrepresenting me online. If that were the case, I would not have survived doing this work for 15 years online, where in the entirety of that 15-year period, I can think of maybe three or four comments I have ever seen in the online comment space or in online fora that have accurately represented my viewpoint on anything. I am misrepresented every single day, every single place that you look, but I am particularly uh, sensitive to this point because this assertion, asserted once again without any evidence and in exact, complete, uh, documentable face of the actual reality uh, is the exact line that is used by the Atlantic Council and their NATO allies and partners around the world in their propaganda push 
to try to assert that anyone who is opposed to NATO or U.S. foreign policy is a Russian propaganda agent. Do you remember the proper not list that the Corbett report was put on five years ago at the beginning of this hyperventilating, over-the-top, Russiagate conspiracy theorizing nonsense that has since taken over the world. Well, Pepperidge Farm remembers, and I certainly do remember. I also remember the follow-up to that story when it was revealed that this anonymous proper not group was, <gasps> can you believe it, inter uh, uh, associated with the Interpreter Mag, which just happened to be a media partner of the Atlantic Council back in 2017. Oh, imagine my shock. Yeah, yeah, I remember all of that. And if you don't, I will include the link so you can get up to speed with it. But it is particularly a particularly sensitive issue at this point, because as we see, anyone who is a dissenter and anyone who's being framed as an extremist or a terrorist or someone who's spreading Russian propaganda is not just being smeared, not just being called names, but is now being actively barred from the financial system and other things is what we're seeing in Canada. So at any rate, I want to be very clear uh, on this particular case and the fact that what you asserted, Thomas, was a lie. And I hope you will retract that. But whether or not you do, the documentable reality is opposite to that. Now, let's get into the substance of your question, which I take to be what is happening in Ukraine and what do I think about it? So let's dive into this with the aforementioned caveat that this is 10 a.m.-ish uh, Japanese Standard Time. So uh, again, this is not the latest breaking news on the ground, but it is within the last couple of days. This is what we've seen. Well, let's uh, turn to antiwar.com where Dave DeCamp has been uh, updating frequently about the latest as it's been unfolding. And we'll start with Putin signs decree recognizing Donbass republics, which uh, was posted as this started to unfold on the 21st of February, which notes that on Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree to formally recognize the independence of the two breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine's Donbass region, known as the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. The decree reads, I deem it necessary to make a decision that should have been made a long time ago to immediately recognize the Donetsk, DPR, and Lugansk, LPR, People's Republics. The DPR and LPR separatists don't control all the territory they claim in the Donbass and have been asking Russia for military assistance. It's not clear at this point if the recognition means Russia is going to intervene. The recognition of the DPR and LPR means Russia's withdrawal from the Minsk agreements, which were signed in 2014 and 2015, to establish the ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. The Minsk Accords were signed in talks brokered by France and Germany. Under the Minsk agreements, Ukraine agreed to cede some autonomy to the DPR and LPR. Russia has grown increasingly frustrated over the fact that Kiev has, hasn't fulfilled its end of the agreement. And that led into the next uh, update from David Camp at antiwar.com. Russia can build military bases in Donbass under new treaty, which reads, in part, Russia will be able to build military bases in the Donbass region under treaties signed by Russian President Vladimir Putin and the leaders of the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, DPR and LPR, Reuters reported on Monday. According to RT, the treaties are still in the draft stages. Russia's state Duma released the documents which show Moscow, Moscow and the separatists will cooperate militarily. The treaties will allow both parties to build, use, and improve military infrastructure, bases, and other objects on their territory. 
After Putin announced he was recognizing the DPR and LPR, he ordered the deployment of troops to the Donbass for a peacekeeping mission. And that update led inevitably to the next one. Putin deploys troops to Donbass republics as peacekeepers. Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the Russian military to send troops to the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, DPR and LPR, in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region in a mission he described as a peacekeeping operation. The order came after Putin signed a decree recognizing the sovereignty of the two republics. Putin also instructed Russia's foreign ministry to establish diplomatic relations with the DPR and LPR. The eastern Ukraine separatists don't control all of the territories they claim in the Donbass. And then it goes on to say, again, at this point, it's not clear if the Russian troops will try to push Ukraine out of the claimed territory or if they will be deployed to the line of control, the buffer zone set by the Minsk agreements, which established the fragile ceasefire in the Donbass. And so, again, this is an evolving story that will have evolved at some in some degree to, by the time you are listening to this. But at the moment, this is not outright open warfare, but it is certainly a military development. Uh, but don't worry, um, Ukrainian president says, uh, the uh, Zelensky has said that there will be no war, but if there is, he will declare martial law. <laughs> so... <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. At any rate, I guess the question is, what does this mean? What are the next steps? How does this unfold from here? And again, some of the latest news that's breaking as of the time I'm recording this. Biden announces sanctions on Russian banks, debt elites. Uh, a report uh, from, again, being reported via antiwar.com, which reads that President Biden announced on Tuesday sanctions against Russia in response to Putin's move to recognize the breakaway republics. Biden said the U.S. was implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, the VEB Bank and Russia's military bank. The U.S. is also sanctioning Russia's sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing, Biden said. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Biden said the U.S. will also start sanctioning Russia's elite and their family members. He said this was only the first tranche of sanctions and warned they could escalate if Russia escalates against Ukraine. And so this move, we are told, uh, came in coordination with U.S. allies. But the real question is, what are the real economic effects of this? Who does it really hurt? There's a good uh, piece up by Daniel LeCall that I'll link to in the show notes, along with everything else. Um, please see the, the show notes for all of these links. Uh, he has a piece, The Steep Cost of Sanctions for Europe and Russia, which notes the sharp economic pain that the U.S. can inflict on Russia via its, via its various levers, including some of the ones that were mentioned in that previous report, the pain that will be felt by the Ukraine, uh, itself as a part of this, and the pain that, oh, by the way, will also be felt by the EU. And we have more on that, um, specifically from a couple of updates uh, to the unfolding economic side of this. Germany suspends Nord Stream 2 pipeline after Putin orders troops to Donbass, noting that indeed Germany has suspended the Nord Stream 2 pipeline approval process which leads into a report uh, via 21st Century Wire. Medvedev, the EU, will soon pay double for gas, which notes that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz ordered to stop the uh, certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Well, welcome to the new world, in which Europeans will soon pay 2,000 euros per 1,000 cubic meters of gas. 
Medvedev, the Russian um, prime minister, wrote in a half-ironic Twitter post. Parse the word half-ironic as you will. At any rate, most ominously, I suppose of all, President Biden orders more U.S. troops to the Baltics. This, again, developing as I'm recording this. On Tuesday, President Biden ordered the deployment of U.S. forces that are already in Europe to the Baltic states, a move he said was a response to Russia's decision to keep troops in Belarus after drills concluded. Today, in response to Russia's admission that it will not withdraw its forces from Belarus, I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, Biden said. Biden framed the deployment as defensive in nature and insisted the U.S. has no intention of fighting Russia. All right, so that's, as I record this, the way things stand. This is not outright military warfare yet, but the movement of troops into the eastern part of Ukraine, the breakaway republics as they're being framed, under the guise of peacekeeping, is certainly a drastic military escalation of the situation. And this is exactly what I was saying when I said, as Thomas did correctly quote me, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, this is something. It's not it-it. This is not warfare yet, but this is clearly a steep escalation. So what what does this really mean? What is the underlying implication of it? Let's turn to some of the online commentariat um, for some, some of the things that are being thrown around about this. And in that regard, I will point you once again to a Corporate Report member, 2D Chess Dweller, who has a substack, yes, x, or no, which I will link, obviously, in the comments, or, sorry, in the show notes for today's uh, questions for Corbett. And he has, he's got a couple of posts as I record this up with updated uh, information and links to lots of different resources on this. So I would suggest you check it out in general. But his most recent, as I record this, is Ukraine, DPR plus LPR, Death of the Minsk Agreements and the Onset of Many a Speech, which has a lot of valuable information and links in it. But I will just highlight a, a little passage here where he says, uh, lastly, we get to the Minsk agreements, which was mentioned before. It is certainly true that Russia's decision to recognize the independence of the republics scuttles the Minsk agreements. However, since 2015, Ukraine itself has been resolutely resisting the core component of the agreements, which is to provide autonomy to the regions via a constitutional amendment. The key interlocutors for the agreement were the government of Ukraine and representatives of the two breakaway republics, with a collection of groups to facilitate, the OSCE and its three-part contact group, and the Normandy 4, Ukraine, France, Germany, and Russia. Ukraine has been undermining both the negotiations component and the implementation component. Now, Russia has also said they're sick of sitting on the merry-go-round and have joined Ukraine itself in getting off. Have fun, France and Germany. You had seven years and we see no sign of change. And he goes on to say, the core of what seems to be occurring is a varied repetition of the events in Georgia in 2008. The West attempts to influence and destabilize a region, previously a part of the USSR, which has a significant Russian-speaking heritage community. The end result is that the territory which the West attempts to gain influence over is fractured into its dominant ethnic components. Those of dominant Russian heritage gain Russia's support and are carved off from the larger whole. A summary of Russia's action may be the least worst scenario. Russia really did want the Minsk Accords to succeed. It is far better for her to have all of Ukraine reunified and to have those autonomous regions within it that can then exert political influence over greater Ukraine to prevent her joining NATO and accepting intermediate-range weaponry on her territory. 
The worst scenario is either all of Ukraine joining NATO, or Russia invading and trying to control all of Ukraine, and suffering a drawn-out insurgency which would deplete resources and during which many would die. The recognition of LPR plus DPR enables Russia to defend the 700,000 Russian citizens there and the greater ethnic Russian community. The political situation will remain unsettled for years, which essentially denies even the remainder of Ukraine joining NATO for the foreseeable future. Okay, and let's turn to another source, uh, which is at least worth looking at, um, and at least parsing for what it's saying and what it's not saying. Uh, The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Yes, that Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft that you will remember from my video uh, a few years ago when they were first announcing it called Coke and Soros Team Up for World Peace, WTF, and the follow-up conversation that I had with Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute on the Coke Soros Quincy Institute interventionists. So there's definitely some background in case you are encountering encountering the Quincy Institute for the first time, but these are the anti-war... Opposition think tank, funded by Coke and Soros. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> they have a post up right now by Anatole Levin, or Levin, or Levin, uh, who is a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe, Europe at the Quincy Institute, but he was also formerly a professor at Georgetown and also in the War Studies Department of King's College London and has been on the advisory committee of the South Asia Department of the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office and... Uh, I think is, well, not an unbiased source in a number of ways, we'll say. He has a post up, Putin's move on Donetsk, Lugansk is illegal, but falls short of new invasion, where he says Russian Russia's official recognition of the separatist Donetsk and Lugansk republics is both illegal under international law and acutely unhelpful politically and makes a diplomatic resolution of the existing crisis even less likely. The Minsk II process for a resolution of the Donba- Donbass co- conflict is now dead. Though, to be fair, the Ukrainian government had long since made clear that it had no intention of implementing its basic provisions on autonomy for the Donbass, and the West had made clear that it had no in- intention of pressuring Ukraine to do so. So, <laughs> so I'll just parenthetically note, if you read the first, the opening to that article, you're going to get the impression this is all Russia's fault. And then in the second paragraph, immediately saying, well, actually, the the accords, which everyone's hoping will be able to settle things down and there will be some sort of peace process, well, actually, Ukraine hasn't been following them at all. <laughs> but anyway, it's that dastardly Russians, I told you. Anyway, that gives you a sense of where this is all going. Uh, anyway, he, he goes on to say, there can also be different levels of military action in what's about to take place here. He says, a Russian seizure of the whole of Ukraine, as imagined by Washington, seems inherently unlikely. An occupation of Russian-speaking areas of eastern and southern Ukraine is much more plausible. It may also be, however, that Russia will content itself with inflicting a limited local defeat on Ukrainian forces in the Donbass by way of illustrating NATO's inability to help Ukraine, followed perhaps by a pause to see what the West does next. This would fall far short of invasion, It would mark only a limited escalation in the conflict that has been going on in the Donbass since 2014. It therefore remains critically important that we should keep the threat of full-scale sanctions in hand in order to deter Russia from full-scale invasion. If we impose full sanctions now, we will have no more economic ammunition to use, and Russia would have nothing to lose by widening the war. 
For as the Biden administration, NATO, and all NATO members have declared, we're not going to fight to defend Ukraine. Economic pressure on Russia is therefore the only powerful lever, lever we have. And note the uses of we in this article if you do go on to read the whole thing. It's interesting. The only powerful lever we have to influence Russian actions. This Western refusal to fight also makes the idea of Ukrainian NATO membership inherently absurd. Nobody in the West is, quite rightly, going to risk the nuclear annihilation of mankind for the sake of the international orientation of Ukraine. All right. Anyway, and then he goes on to say that we need to keep those sanctions uh, uh, on the table and hovering like the sword of Damocles over Russia's head. Who's the we? And who is what? What army precisely is uh, is this uh, Anatole Levin commanding here? I don't know. But anyway. So there you go. Those are some of the things that are being said about this. I guess the operative question is, what am I saying about this? And I would say, as always, we need to understand the context of what is happening here in order to understand this at all. Because, of course, the thing that is being propounded in certainly the Western establishment media by all of the establishment media mouthpieces who have lied to you about everything your entire life... I mean, turn your mind back a couple of decades ago to Saddam's weapons of mass destruction and everything else. They love to portray every enemy as literally Hitler. Anyone who's on the State Department hit list is literally Hitler. And that they are all insane, raving, dribbling lunatics who are suicidal and are bloodthirsty and are motivated by nothing other than hatred and lust for other people's power uh, territory, wealth, what have you, and that they will do anything to get it. And I, uh, I think a lot of things about Putin. I don't think that that is necessarily his motivation. I don't think he's a, 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 a an insane suicidal maniac who's willing to start World War III over what's happening right now. So the question is then, what is the motivation here, and what is really happening? And in order to understand that, we cannot understand that unless and until we understand, we, we, we decide at least where to start the clock on trying to understand this process. Because if you walk into a room and you see someone who's punching and punching someone else, and you might think, oh, this person's an aggressor and pull him off. What did you do? I'm arresting you. But if you had walked into the room 30 seconds before, you might have seen that that person who was being punched, uh, punching the other man first, or trying to kill his family or something else that would completely change the situation. Again, where do you start the clock? Where do you start looking at this? What was the first aggression? Where did it happen? And so let's not be naive about what is happening right now that just Putin woke up a few weeks ago and just decided, I'm invading Ukraine. (laughs) No, there's a lot of story and a lot of backstory to this that it behooves us to understand. Whether you are pro-Putin, anti-Putin, or a realist, in my sense, of someone who's not on any team of any of these controlled nationalist uh, thugs who th- threaten to rule over other people, it at least serves our interests to know some of this history. So, for example, you could read a very recent report from Alan McLeod, who uh, has this up just from a few days ago. Documents reveal U.S. government spent $22 million promoting anti-Russian narrative in Ukraine and abroad. Uh, which notes that amid soaring tensions with Russia, the United States is spending a fortune on foreign interference campaigns in Ukraine. Washington's regime change arm, the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, has spent 22.4 
million dollars on operations inside the country since 2014, when democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown and replaced by a successor government handpicked by the U.S. Those operations included propping up and training pro-Western political parties, funding pliant media organizations, and subsidizing massive privatization drives that benefit foreign multinational corporations, all in an effort to secure U.S. control over the country that NED President Carl Gershman called the biggest prize in Europe. So that, that might be some of the context to this, what's unfolding right now that might be useful for us to know about, but... million. Uh, That sounds like a lot, but that is nothing compared to, oh, I don't know, $5 billion? In late 2004, protests erupted in Kiev after Viktor Yanukovych won that year's Ukrainian presidential election, with protesters claiming that the vote had been rigged. The protests forced a revote in which Yanukovych's rival, Viktor Yushchenko, was elected president. This movement, dubbed the Orange Revolution for the orange ribbons and clothing sported by its members, was one of a series of so-called color revolutions which swept the former Soviet republics in the last decade. As The Guardian noted at the time of the protests, The campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing that, in four countries in four years, has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes. The Democratic Party's National Democratic Institute, the Republican Party's International Republican Institute, the U.S. State Department, and USAID are the main agencies involved in these grassroots campaigns. So it is not without reason that seasoned political observers looked for outside connections to the recent protests in Ukraine that has, in an almost exact repeat of the 2004 protests, sought to overthrow the elected government of Viktor Yanukovych in order to install Viktor Yushchenko's political allies. These connections have not been difficult to find. We're talking about Victoria Newland, the top U.S. diplomat for Europe, Assistant Secretary. This is about a phone call she was having with the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeff Pyatt. And I got to say, for a diplomatic reporter like me, it was a fascinating conversation. He's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it. And, you know, f- the EU. Audio of Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland apparently dictating who the U.S. wanted in and out of the supposedly grassroots-supported interim government only came as a surprise to those who did not believe Washington or its allies in the Washington Consensus were actively involved with the ongoing protests in the country. As did the revelation of her admission last December that the U.S. had already pumped $5 billion into the funding of the Ukrainian opposition. Since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote civic participation and good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine as did the appearance of confirmed terrorist supporter John McCain at a rally with the leader of the Ukrainian neo-Nazi Svoboda party leader, as did the appointment of a central banker as the interim prime minister and his immediate announcement that the country was in talks with the US, EU, and IMF for emergency loans.
Ukraine's acting Prime Minister Asni Yatsenyuk said on Friday he is determined to comply with conditions set by the International Monetary Fund in exchange for loans. An IMF mission is due in Kiev next week for talks with Ukraine's de facto leaders who have said the heavily indebted country needs at least 35 billion US dollars to stave off bankruptcy. As did the appearance of a slick new viral propaganda video in English promoting the supposedly grassroots uprising, which was immediately exposed as finding its inspiration in Council on Foreign Relations member Larry Diamond, who has worked closely with the same NED and USAID that were linked to the 2004 Orange Revolution. You know, I, I think some of that might be important context to what's going on in Ukraine today, when you have literal State Department stooge Victoria Newland, a.k.a. Mrs. Robert Kagan, the, one of the co-founders of PNAC, out there literally handing out cookies to protesters on the street there in Ukraine, and oh, by the way, handing them $5 billion in aid to help overthrow their government— I think that might be an important part of this puzzle. And I, it's funny, I saw even people in the comments of the last New World Next Week quibbling about the phrase, oh, neo-Nazi, oh, Antifa. Antifa just throws that around to anyone these days. No, we're talking about literal swastika flag waving, SS rune helmet wearing, literal avowed master race uh, supporting neo-Nazis, literal neo-Nazis in, for example, the Azov Battalion that, oh, by the way, likes to post on their social media about welcoming NATO commanders and showing them around, led by U.S. representatives. And NBC News likes to put their photo ops up and promote them as, wow, look at, you know, Ukrainians getting into the fighting spirit with this grandma in this Azov Battalion helmet. Let's see if she's wearing the SS rune. Maybe, maybe she is, but NBC News doesn't care about any of that for some reason when it comes to reporting on this story. So, yeah, I do think these are important pieces of the puzzle to understand what is really happening in Ukraine right now. And in fact, this is not the ancient history of 2014. This is happening today. In fact, fresh off the newswire, I just saw this report from thinktankwatch.com. Ukrainian lobbyists flood U.S. think tanks which reads in part, as tensions with Russia reach a boiling point, lobbyists from Ukraine are working feverishly to shape the U.S. response. Firms working for Ukrainian interests have inundated congressional offices, think tanks, and journalists with more than 10,000 messages and meetings in 2021, according to an, anal an analysis of Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, filings for a forthcoming uh, report from the Quincy Institute. Think tanks were contacted, contacted more than 1,100 times by Ukraine's agents, and more than half of these were directed at one in particular, say it with me, the Atlantic Council. This extraordinary outreach included multiple meetings with Atlantic Council scholars like ex-U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine John Herbst, who has advocated for a more militarized approach to Russia amid the Ukraine crisis. The Atlantic Council has also launched Ukraine Alert, which publishes daily pieces on deterring Russia. A recent article, Survey, Western Public Backs Stronger Support for Ukraine Against Russia, notes the survey in question was commissioned by Viktor Pinchuk Foundation and Yalta European Strategy, which Pinchuk founded. However, the article does not mention that the foundation is a large contributor to the Atlantic Council, donating $250,000 to $499,000 a year, or that Pinchuk himself, the second wealthiest man in Ukraine, 
sits on the International Advisory Board of the Atlantic Council. Oh, what a surprise. But okay, let's put this in perspective, because here's the rub. Uh, There's an interesting thing that is bubbling under the surface that I've already pointed to a couple of times, but I think is more important than the mainstream media and the establishment mouthpieces and lapdogs of the, uh, the State Department and their wealthy funders would have you believe. Um, it, it relates, in fact, interestingly, to what timing an incredible new find from Der Spiegel, who unearthed just a few days ago some interesting documents and announced a major discovery, namely that a document proving uh, uh, what has long been officially denied is now out in the open, that NATO absolutely deceived Russia about its eastward expansion throughout the 1990s. Um, And that report reads in part through translation, so this is maybe a bit clunky, but it says, We have made it clear that we will not expand NATO beyond the Elbe, wrote German diplomat Jürgen Kroberg of a March 1991 meeting of the United States, Britain, France, and Germany. This document confirms Russia's view of eastward enlargement of NATO. A note from the British National Archives, which has only just surfaced, supports the Russian claim that the West violated promises made in 1990 with NATO's eastward expansion. Bond's representative Jürgen Kroberg, Krobog, said at the time, we made it clear in the two plus four negotiations that we would not expand NATO beyond the Elba. We can therefore not offer NATO membership to Poland and the others. The British, French, and Americans also rejected NATO membership for East, the Eastern Europeans. U.S. Representative Raymond Seitz said, We have made it clear to the Soviet Union in 2 plus 4 talks and elsewhere that we will not take advantage of the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Eastern Europe. Two years later, the Americans corrected their politics, which is <laughs> an interesting translation that's coming from this auto-translation, but actually probably says more than it even knows. Um, anyway... It's an interesting report because, as I say, Der Spiegel just unearthed this document. And there you go, guys. It proves, you know, and I, Russia's been saying this for a long time. But, well, you know, it's just Russia. You're not going to take their word for it. Well, here it is in black and white in this document. Yeah, we promise no expansion beyond the Elba. But actually, this is not news. The National Security Archive has had an entire study panel on declassified documents proving Quote, assurances against NATO expansion to Soviet leaders from Baker, Bush, Genscher, Cole, Gates, Mitterrand, Thatcher, Hurd, Major, and Werner. Four years ago, they were having these discussions. I remember seeing it at the time about declassified documents at that time, already proving that this was a demonstrable promise that had been made, a real, actual, documentable, certifiable promise that had been made at that time to Gorbachev and the others in the Russian government. No, we're not expanding east. We're not expanding east. So this isn't news, which really does beg the question of why would a German newspaper be publishing this not exactly new news at this precise moment, just a few days ago, just in the middle of this crisis developing? Hmm, I wonder why Germany might be interested in this story. The crisis in Ukraine is not about Ukraine. It's about Germany. RonPaulInstitute.org has the article, which begins with an interesting quote, James, the primordial interest of the United States, over which for centuries we have fought wars, the first, the second, cold wars, has been the relationship between Germany and Russia, because united there, they're the only force that could threaten us, and to make sure that that doesn't happen. 
George Friedman, the CEO of essentially corporate intelligence outlet Stratfor, talking to the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs. Mike Whitney writes, the Ukrainian crisis has nothing to do with Ukraine. It's about Germany, and in particular, a pipeline that connects Germany to Russia called Nord Stream 2. James, it sounds like it was some sort of new VPN they were pushing on people. Again, the language is, is easily confusing to people. Washington sees the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as a threat to its primacy in Europe and has tried to sabotage the project at every turn. Even so, Nord Stream has pushed ahead and is now fully operational and ready to go. Once German regulators provide the final certification, the gas deliveries will begin. German homeowners and businesses get a reliable source of clean and inexpensive energy, while Russia will see a significant boost to their gas revenues. Win-win for both. The U.S. foreign policy establishment is not happy about these developments. They don't want Germany to become more dependent on Russian gas because commerce builds trust and trust leads to the expansion of trade. As relations grow warmer, more trade barriers lifted, regulations eased, travel and tourism increase, and a new security architecture evolves. In a world where Germany and Russia are friends and trading partners, there's no need for U.S. military bases, no need for expensive U.S.-made weapons and missile systems, and certainly no need for NATO. There's also no need to transact energy deals in the U.S. dollar. Transactions between business partners can be conducted in their own currencies. This is why the Biden administration opposes Nord Stream. It's not just a pipeline. It's a window into the future. Warmer relations between Germany and Russia signal an end to the unipolar world order the U.S. has overseen for the last 75 years. This is why Washington is determined to do everything it can to sabotage Nord Stream and keep Germany within its orbit. It's a matter of survival. That's where Ukraine comes into the picture. Ukraine is Washington's weapon of choice for torpedoing Nord Stream and putting a wedge between Germany and Russia. Washington needs to create the perception that Russia poses a security threat to Europe. They need to show that evil Putin is bloodthirsty aggressor with a hair-trigger temper who can't be trusted. And to that end, the compliant media have obviously been given their assignment of reiterating again, over and over again, Russia's planning to invade the Ukraine. They've amassed a bajillion troops along the border, threatening to plunge all of Europe into another bloody war. Meanwhile, I guess everybody's, like we're all in prison, James, everybody's gonna have to choose up sides. U.S. expert warns France and Germany will throw the Americans under the bus. U.S. President Joe Biden said after his meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, because they're trying, of course, get the approval on this, that he will end the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Europe if Moscow sent troops to Ukraine. Quote, if Russia invades, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it, Biden said during a joint press conference with Scholz. When pressed, of course, for more details on just how exactly the U.S. can achieve this, Biden could only mutter, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Well, here we are. And wouldn't you know it, Biden, or at least his teleprompter, has made good on that promise. Yes, as, we, as we've already documented, Germany has stopped the approval process for Nord Stream 2. So at least as of this moment, it is not proceeding. So there you go, mission accomplished. And I think that does put it into perspective. What is happening in Ukraine right now, the big power politics play that is happening, at least from the U.S. perspective, is much more to do with, say, German-Russian relations and the bigger question of politics of Eurasia moving forward from here than it does for concern 
yearn for the Ukrainian people. Oh, we have love for the Ukrainians in our heart, and that's why we're offering to extend all this aid and military support and what have you to Ukraine. It has exactly as much to do with genuine love for the Ukrainian people and genuine concern and sympathy for their plight as, say, the bombing of Libya a decade ago had to do with the love for the people of Libya suffering under the thumb of Gaddafi, which is to say nothing at all. It is a pretense, a fig leaf, a pathetic and obviously transparent fig leaf of justification for what is going on. The big power play geopolitical moves that are happening right now, and you would be naive to believe it. So that would be something that I would say to the Poles and the Ukrainians and others who have justifiable, documentable, historical reasons for being concerned about Russian aggression and invasion and potential uh, threats to their sovereignty. Absolutely. I do not dismiss that or discount that. And I think it would be naive to think Putin is some wonderful, benevolent person who just cares about humanity and is doing everything for sunshine and rainbows. Absolutely not. He is doing whatever he thinks is in his interests, underlying his, not the Russian people or the people of the earth. No, Putin and his clique. Obviously, it is about their interests. But on the flip side of that equation, you are being driven into the arms of the U.S. NATO military empire. Don't worry. Shh, just, just give us all your power. Just, just let us help you. Shh, it's okay. We'll take care of you for precisely as long as we need to pretend to care about you in order to get what we want geopolitically, economically, and otherwise out of this. And you would be absolutely historically ignorant and naive to believe otherwise. This is the base level of the reality of these big geopolitical games that are played. We are the pawns on this chessboard that are completely and utterly expendable in the eyes of the great geopolitical players. The the whatever, the Putins, the Bidens, the other political puppets who are paraded in front of us as the leaders of these countries who, oh, by the way, all have ties back to the World Economic Forum and other centers of power like that, but never talk about that. No, 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 no. No, we have to talk about these leaders are the leaders of the country and they are swooping in to because they love Ukraine, they love the Poles, they love the, these, the people of these countries. No, hogwash. These people are pawns to them, and you are being used, and choosing sides in this phony dialectic, as I have said all along, is the phony game they want you to play, because they know how to win that game against you. Now, having said that, there are a couple of different caps that I could give uh, that I could wear to give a summary of what I'm saying here today. If I put on my anarchist cap, I suppose I could look at it and say, hey, breakaway republics and people declaring independence, and yay, good. The, the further we decentralize down, the closer down to actual individual sovereignty, the better. So, hey, absolutely, declare your independence there in the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine there, and I hope different places in Russia start declaring their independence from Moscow. And yes, let's keep breaking it down further and further. Communities starting to declare their independence from the greater cities that they live in. And eventually, people declaring independence. Hey, wouldn't that be great? Uh, realistically, though, unfortunately, the reality of this, when we have these big geopolitical power players, these superpowers on the scene with 
unbelievable wealth, resources, and military might, then the smaller these breakaway republics become, the more pliant and pliable they become, the more they are simply just essentially vassal states. Um, these Donetsk, Donetsk, and Lugansk republics may not I mean, however this turns out, they, they may not actually literally become part of Russia, but they will essentially be beholden to Russian interests and will just be acting as Russia's proxy in the region. So anyway, that's the reality of it. So again, like I wouldn't flip the switch to make every the world anarchist overnight because that wouldn't work. Again, I don't think just devolving government down to closer and closer to individual level. I don't think that's necessarily going to work when there are these big competing geostrategic interests. So I guess putting, taking off the anarchist cap and putting on the geopolitical analyst cap, looking at the potential for a World War III scenario developing, and I do not believe this is the event that will kick it off, but I do think we are on the path toward that. And as I've stressed a lot over the past few months, we, geopolitical concerns are resurging, and I do see this in the decade-long game plan towards the 2030 agenda. I do see hot war as the very real possibility that it is, keeping it in perspective, as I always do, of the larger question of what this war is really about, that it's not about this particular piece of the geopolitical chessboard. It is the war of governments against you, against me, against all of us at this pawn level of the chessboard. We're just the pawns to be moved around, shuffled around as need be, and eventually steered into the global fourth industrial revolution, great reset world order that all of the power players involved here are working towards, Putin's and Biden's and everyone else. And uh, unfortunately, they're just jockeying and negotiating for a better seat at that new world order table when it is established. I've said a lot already. I, I hope that goes some way toward clarifying my position on this, as well as updating you as to what is taking place in Ukraine as we speak. But I hope that puts it in the bigger context of what this is really about, and that choosing sides in these big geopolitical conflicts is not the way forward. That is not the way forward for free humanity anyway. And I think we all need to understand a little bit more of the history and context of what we're talking about to really understand what's going on. Anyway, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of links in the show notes for this episode. I hope you will follow them in order to better inform yourselves about these issues. And that's going to do it for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.